everyone, and welcome back to the High School SCOTUS podcast. I'm Elise Benner. And I'm Hannah Sarap. Today, we have a very exciting and engaging podcast episode for you. We're going to play our interview with Professor Richard Sander of the University of California, Los Angeles School of Law. Richard Sander has taught at UCLA for over 30 years, studying housing segregation, the growth of the legal profession, and perhaps most relevant for today's podcast, the structure and effects of law school admissions policy. He has spent years extensively analyzing the costs and benefits of affirmative action, which is exactly why we are so excited for him to join us on the podcast today. We're going to start out by talking about what Professor Sander observed during his time studying housing segregation and his work observing the effects of housing. We're also going to talk about his viewpoint on affirmative action. He offers some really, really interesting points when it comes to the empirical outcomes of affirmative action and how that likely reflects the feelings of underrepresented minority students about affirmative action and whether it's worthwhile, whether it's constitutional, and how the Supreme Court is likely going to rule in June. And we're so excited to jump into the podcast, but before we do, we wanted to add one super quick note, which is that we understand that a really preferred norm of speaking right now is people first language. And we use that language as individuals whenever possible. Some of Professor Sanders' language did deviate from that norm, but we really value his perspective and the content of his commentary. So we thought it would be better to leave the interview unedited in that respect. And if you have different feelings about the decision we made or you feel that we should do something else, just please let us know in the comments respectfully. We want to acknowledge everyone's opinions on this issue and we understand that it's super, super important. But for now, let's get into that interview. Professor Sander, thank you so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. Sorry, I got a little too excited because I always like to ask the first question because it's the most fun. And it's, what were you like when you were a high school student? Hmm. Well, I grew up in Northwest Indiana in pretty small towns. And I felt sort of politically isolated because I was in a pretty conservative area and I was fairly liberal. I memorably had a high school debate where we were debating whether evolution or creation were true. And I recruited two other students to be on, on the evolution side of the debate. So the three of us debated the other three students. And at the end of the debate, the two students on my team deserted me and the class voted 30 to one creation was the true explanation of the origin of life. So that was a challenging environment, but it was a very kind of fun place to grow up. I biked around everywhere and I did speech team and debate and journalism, high school band and went East for college. A little bit of everything. That's fantastic. I'm a journalist and do mock trial. So definitely resonates with me. High school journalism is amazing. So that's cool to see that you did it as well. Yeah, we had, when I was a senior, the teachers went on a strike. And so we actually had a news story to cover and we were navigating what the school newspaper wouldn't let us publish because it was very divisive, controversial issues. So that was pretty exciting. That's super interesting. Yeah, no, just this spring, our school district kind of kept the mask mandate in place, despite the rest of the state of California stepping back and saying masks can be strongly recommended. And it just lit up in our city. And it was insane because we got a lot of negative feedback, but it's a great experience and kind of immerses you in the legal freedoms that journalists has. Mm -hmm. So tell us if we're skipping forward too quickly, but I wanted to talk about 
kind of post-college, maybe post-law school, your experience working in observing housing segregation and how that impacted your perspective on the history of systemic discrimination and the need for diversity. Just tell us how that informed your views. Sure. Well, after college, I knew I wanted to work on public policy issues. And a lot of my friends were moving to Washington, D.C. to do internships or jobs on Capitol Hill, things like that. And I felt in contrast that I really didn't know enough about what was going on in the real world to know what solutions were good. So I, I joined Vista, a predecessor of AmeriCorps and served as a community organizer on the South side of Chicago and ended up spending five years working in various sorts of community organizations and local institutions in Chicago. And really that provided all the grist for the work that I've done later because I learned about dynamics of racial inequality. I got some perspective on potential excesses of government interventions, market versus government alternatives to trying to address social problems, and a deep awareness of racial segregation as kind of a fundamental driver of other problems in society. So I went back to school, got a PhD in economics and a JD, worked briefly as a lawyer, and then joined the UCLA law faculty in 1989, where I've been for the last 33 years. And most of my research is aimed at trying to use social science tools to evaluate legal policies of various kinds and help us get some empirical perspective on how things work. So I've written a book about housing segregation and with two collaborators trying to figure out the dynamics of that and how races evolved over the 20th century, how fair housing laws worked and so on. And I think that work sort of exemplifies my approach in the sense that it's very empirical. And I'm very much of the view that racial segregation needs to be addressed and we need to figure out ways to reduce it. But I also very much reject a lot of the simplistic narratives of sort of systemic racism that, that you see in books like The Color of Law and some other popular books about segregation. It seems to me that a lot of liberal and standard academic accounts and too much conspiracy thinking and very simplistic explanations and sort of see government as all powerful and just make a lot of mistakes that obscure what's really going on. So I think it's very important that one try to be non-ideological and really delve into complexity of reality and dig enough empirically to actually tease out what's going on. So that's kind of a general approach. And I think that really illustrates my take on affirmative action, which is that affirmative action systems are built on a lot of assumptions that often are not empirically examined and that one needs to really delve into how different policies work and understand trade-offs and be realistic about what these, what these practices do and don't do. And there's, you know, 95% of the people who write in this field don't do any of that. They just sort of riff off of kind of their ideological priors and don't really engage with the empiricism. When you talk about government overreach and viewing government as omnipotent, what do you see as the proper role of government in the legal system in working to rectify housing segregation, systemic racism and discrimination? What role do you see government and the law playing in that? Well, some of the simplistic accounts that I criticize think that housing segregation was sort of a gigantic government conspiracy. And there's a book called, I think I mentioned the book, The Color of Law, which has on its cover a map of a city divided into different color-coded areas. And this is the kind of map that generated the term redlining, because there was a program in the New Deal 
that try to identify the risks associated with making mortgages in different types of areas. And green areas were the safest and red areas were the most dangerous or the ones with the highest likelihood of default. And the story that got generated was that the red areas were black areas and that the government was telling banks to stop making loans in black areas. And this is just a very widely perpetuated myth because when you actually look at the maps and study the decision-making process this agency went through, he used about 20 different factors of which race was one, but not a particularly important one. So things like age of housing and poverty levels and stuff like that explain the shape of these maps much more than race does. And there was in fact quite a bit of lending going on in, in supposedly rental neighborhoods. So that's just an illustration and this will, I guess a little bit of beside our point, but it's an illustration of kind of a very simplistic narrative taking over. And to answer your question, if you believe that simplistic narrative, then you're inclined to think, well, the solution to that is to have credit rationing and basically set aside specific pools of credit for different racial groups and just very tightly control bank behavior to prevent discrimination. But I think the evidence suggests that on the whole, fair lending laws have worked quite well. And in general, in the housing market, housing discrimination has fallen pretty dramatically since the 1960s. It's been an area where civil rights law has worked. And the problem is that an absence of discrimination does not produce integration because you still have problems of people learning about housing opportunities from their friendship networks. And if a city is very segregated, then your friendship networks are segregated and you just don't learn about housing opportunities elsewhere. So doing things like affirmative marketing or providing modest subsidies to encourage people to make pro-integrated moves, things like that, pretty modest interventions, I think can actually bring about a lot of integration. So a more kind of gentle and market-friendly policy, I think is a better way to go that's going to be more efficient and, and probably more productive. I think that's really interesting because growing up in Seattle, there's a big history of redlining and even racial covenants within the city of Seattle. And I took actually a three-week-long class in intensive on housing in Seattle, basically. It was called the history of buildings. It was more about buildings, but we started it by looking into redlining and the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle, which is based in our international district, has a really amazing exhibit on redlining. And I do think a lot of what you said about redlining being complex and having race as a factor, but not the only factor is definitely true. And so moving a little bit to affirmative action, what, what do you see as the original goal of affirmative action? And how has its use and kind of application changed over time? Good. So if we start around the mid-1960s, we were trying to open up American society through civil rights laws. And in 1964, Congress passed Civil Rights Act of 1964, which included a title, Title VI, that prohibited discrimination in government-funded education. And among other things, that really put teeth into Brown against Board of Education and led to more active efforts to desegregate schools in the South and eventually efforts to desegregate some northern school districts. So at the time, some colleges had become formally race neutral in their admissions. It was pretty common. I'd say probably most colleges were discriminating to some degree in the 30s and 40s. A lot of northern schools had become more race blind by the mid-60s. Other schools were still discriminating. So affirmative action was originally aimed at trying to stop discrimination where it was occurring and also to get the schools that were formerly colorblind to think about what they were doing and try to increase pathways to admission. Because if, if you were a school that say in the forties had discriminated and in 1964, you stopped discriminating, that didn't mean that you were going to get a lot of black applicants. 
because blacks would see you as a, as an institution that was historically unfriendly to them. So when I had to do affirmative outreach to try to change that image, and one also might want to rethink sort of the types of courses you required in your freshman year, the types of transitional tutoring you might provide, whether your application processes were relying too much on old boy networks and references, as opposed to more objective criteria of academic achievements. So the original affirmative action push was all about getting schools to be proactive and thinking about how to really open to opportunity across different groups. By 1969, 1970, a lot of schools were feeling that that had not cut the mustard, that although they had made those efforts, they were still seeing entering student bodies that were only say two or three or 4% black. And schools were starting to get both internal and external pressure to get those numbers closer to 10%, which is about the proportion of blacks in high school graduating classes. So schools started introducing preferences. And originally, a lot of the preferences were both racial and socioeconomic. And the notion was we have to be aggressive and we have to find ways of getting our enrollment numbers up. A lot of those initial efforts turned out very badly. So my law school had a program that had started in 1970, where it basically admitted just a block of super disadvantaged students. And they just had disastrous outcomes. They did really badly in the classes. They were very unhappy. They tend to fail the bar exam and so on. So my law school and a lot of other institutions started rolling those programs back by the late 1970s. And they kept the preferences, but they would focus on use of the preferences mainly just for racial diversity. And they focused on trying to get sort of the students who they thought would most easily adapt to their institution, which often meant upper middle class minorities. And I say minorities because by this time, schools were thinking about Hispanics and sometimes Asians as well as blacks. So it became essentially a racial set aside program. It was no longer really focused on disadvantaged as much as just racial diversity. So by 1980, that pattern was pretty much set. And that's still what most undergraduate and graduate institutions do. They focus on trying to have certain rough targets for racial diversity, basically trying to admit students from each racial group at the same rate. So if they're admitting 20% of their white applicants, then they want to admit 20% of their black applicants. And they'll use sort of the same criteria within each racial pool to get the strongest people within each, each group. So what I hear you saying is that there was a transition from trying to admit students from generally disadvantaged backgrounds to make the school more diverse and more open to this idea of trying to increase racial diversity and seeing kind of the safest way to do that maybe is to admit racially diverse students from upper middle class backgrounds, which can kind of make it maybe narrower and also less, it makes it feel more like quantitative almost. You're just trying to take a certain number of students. So then let's talk about kind of this idea of diversity being a really good thing for schools to have and wanting to promote diversity, racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, geographic diversity. Do you see that as a compelling motivation for affirmative action? Well, when you say compelling, are you referring to the, the constitutional standard that schools need to demonstrate a compelling state interest to take race into account? I would start with your personal beliefs on diversity as a mm -hmm. legitimate reason. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think other things being equal, racial diversity is a very important goal. I mean, as I just mentioned in the housing market, we clearly need to achieve more racial integration. And I'm actually doing some research right now with Department of Education data. 
where you could show that more integrated schools produce better test results, other things being equal, especially for blacks. I mean, a huge factor in the racial test score gap is the high level of segregation in K-12 schools. And areas like San Diego that have a lot of racial integration have much smaller black-white test score gaps than areas like Los Angeles, where I live. So integration is highly desirable. It's important. But at the college level, if you have racial integration that's achieved by essentially doing the sort of proportional admissions that I was talking about, you often get really big credential gaps between different racial groups. So at UNC, University of North Carolina, the whites in, the, in their freshman class have SAT scores and, and GPAs that are dramatically higher than, than those in their black classmates. So you have a big academic gap, preparation gap that correlates with race. That's a very unhealthy way to have diversity. And it cancels out a lot of the intended benefits of diversity. And that happens for several reasons. One is that if you have that big preparation gap, then the black students are going to struggle academically. A majority of them will end up in the bottom fifth of the class. If they are interested in the sciences, they will have disproportionate difficulty with those science classes. And they'll very often switch out of sciences into non-STEM areas. You'll have less social integration because a lot of research shows that people tend to form friendships at college with students who have similar kind of academic goals and achievements to them. So to put it over simplistically, the A students tend to hang out together and the C students tend to hang out together. So if grades are kind of sure to be disparate according to race, then that's going to foster social segregation instead of social integration. And then there's the whole issue of attitudes. And we want integration partly to get people to overcome stereotypes. But if you create an academic environment in which Asians are performing strongest and then whites, and then Hispanics and blacks, that's going to increase stereotypes. It's sort of doing exactly the opposite of what you want to do by that environment. So I think that the policies we've ended up having at colleges and professional schools are almost exquisitely counterproductive. What do you see as an alternative to policies that intend to increase racial diversity? Because, for example, the UC system, right, are race-aligned admissions, but that means that minority enrollment is dramatically dropped. So how do we continue trying to integrate higher education and rectify discrimination without creating the isolation and maybe the academic mismatch that you talk about. Well, why do you say that they dramatically dropped? Oh, I just, I thought maybe that's not truly right, but I thought that the black enrollment at UCs had dropped when they moved to race blind admissions at the UCs. Well, this is something that, that UC continually claims to be true. And lots of other people will, I mean, the newspapers regularly reported. There are lots of reasons you could have gotten that impression, but if you look at the facts, it's not true. So can I share my screen for a moment? So this is an official university chart that shows from 1989 to 2013, the racial makeup of applications, admissions, and enrollment. So, so if you look at this row right here, these are the black enrollment numbers for the UC system over that period. So what you can see is that from 89 to 97, which was the last year of preferences, black enrollment went from 11 77 to 917. So black enrollment was falling during the eight years before Prop 209 went into effect. Then the first year of implementation of Prop 209, there was a black drop from 917 to 739. So about a 20% drop. But as the university deployed new methods of trying to build the pipeline, those numbers started going up. So by 2002, 
we were back to where we'd been before Prop 2 and 9, and then it just continued to go up. So by 2008, it was 1363, about 50% higher than it had been before. With Chicanos and Latinos, those are the two Hispanic categories the school has, there was virtually no drop originally. It was like maybe a 5% drop, and then the numbers just took off after being flat for the nine years before Prop 2 and 9. So it's a very widespread myth. It's a very pernicious myth. It's a myth that the University of California perpetuated a breach that applied with the Supreme Court. And it really illustrates the difficulty of having a rational conversation about affirmative action, because there are so many institutions that deny basic facts. I mean, two years ago, you'll probably remember, at least, that there was something called Prop 16 on the ballot in California, which would have repealed Prop 209. And I had a radio debate with a, with a regent who just insisted that there were dramatically more Blacks at the University of California before Prop 2 and I than there were now. And I was like, you're a regent. You have no idea what's going on at the university. You're publicly representing these policies that you don't understand. So why did that turnaround happen? Let me share this one more time. If you look at Black applications, again, you can see Black applications were completely flat in the eight years before Prop 209. And then look at what happened afterwards. They doubled in the 10 years after Prop 209, from 2141 to 4352 in 2009, which is amazing, right? I mean, it's just the opposite of, of everything that we're told. And the way that happened is that the university, no longer being able to just use racial preferences to get whatever numbers it wanted, it had to start investing in high schools. And UCLA formed partnerships with several local high schools in poor areas of Los Angeles. The black high school graduation rate went up sharply in the decade after Prop 209 because there was more attention to helping students succeed in the school. A lot more students started worrying about the A to G requirements we have at the UC so that they could take the high school classes they needed to take. You probably know about those at least, right? There are certain courses you need to take if you want to be UC eligible. It used to be that in urban high schools, you often just didn't know that. And you'd be a senior and you'd find out that you couldn't apply to UC because you hadn't taken the courses you needed. So many, many things like that to try to improve the pipeline. And that's the whole idea that I want to get across is that once you're forced to not use preferences, it gets you to really focus on the real problem, which is we have to produce more Black and Hispanic students who have strong academic qualifications from high school. Right. And would you say that has the same trend held up among individual UCs? So for example, if you take UC Berkeley and UCLA, the two most selective institutions in the UCs, do they still have an increasing enrollment of Black students and underrepresented minority students? Well, that's a very good point. So if we look at Berkeley, here's the data for Berkeley. So at Berkeley, Blacks went from 310 to 252 over the eight years before Prop 2 and 9. And then, yeah, and then there was a 50% drop from Prop 2 and 9. And then some gradual rebuilding, but not too much. So if you want to argue that Prop 2 and 9 hurt minority enrollment, Berkeley is your best case because that's the most elite UC school. The numbers look better for UCLA and at pretty much all the other campuses, black numbers have just gone up. So Berkeley is kind of the case that the doomsayers focus on. But even Berkeley is, is not really a successful argument for that because before Prop 209, the four-year graduation rate for Blacks at Berkeley was under 20%, and the ultimate graduation rate was under 50%. Terrible, terrible numbers, right? I mean, almost unbelievable numbers. At UCLA, the four-year graduation rate for Blacks before Prop 209 was like 15%. So after Prop 209, because you couldn't use racial preferences, the academic gap between Black and white students at Berkeley and UCLA fell dramatically. So the Black students who were still there were much more likely to be successful. So the graduation rates went up dramatically. So 
the number to focus on, I mean, the number we ought to care about is not how many freshmen there are, but how many graduates there are, right? And the graduate number from Berkeley has actually held pretty constant, while at the same time going up at almost all the other UCs. Does that make sense? Do you see the point I'm making? Yes, completely. All right. So again, it's if you look at any of the newspaper coverage or briefs or folks who talk about Prop 2 and I being harmful, number one, they'll tend to just focus on Berkeley and UCLA. And number two, they'll always talk about first-year enrollment. They'll never talk about ultimate outcomes and graduation and STEM majors, all of which show dramatic improvement. And by the way, I'll just add one other comment, which is one of the harmful effects of preferences before 209 in California was that half of all the Blacks in the UC system were at UCLA and Berkeley because there were so few Blacks who had completed the AG requirements that basically UCLA and Berkeley were able to absorb the ball. They just sort of said, we want as many of these students as possible. And so Blacks were actually kind of disproportionately segregated on those two campuses. There's a much more even distribution of Blacks across all the UC campuses now than there was before Top 209. Do you view this solution, so taking away the option of racial preferences and instead forcing universities to invest in underrepresented minority students at the high school level, trying to solve the root issue before students get to college, do you see that as applicable or possible to implement at other selective institutions? Yeah, I think so. I've been writing about affirmative action for about 20 years, and when I first identified some of these problems and patterns, it was very hard to get university administrators to engage. In 2013, Supreme Court handed down its opinion in Fisher 1, which was a 5-4 opinion written by Justice Kennedy. And it was a very ambiguously written opinion. Kennedy was famous for writing very big opinions, but it was seen as maybe leading to a striking down of preferences. Between the time that opinion came out and two years later, there was just this flowering of engagement and conversation about race-neutral alternatives by university presidents. I went to two different meetings in 2014 where I got to interact with dozens of university presidents and they wanted to hear about these ideas. Then a second Fisher opinion came out in which Kennedy said, oh, okay, it's all right. We're not going to strike anything down. And the interest immediately died. So it was really, really striking that when names looked tough, there was a, a great movement for reform and then that dissipated when racial preferences were okay again. Moving, I guess, away from theories of affirmative action, especially in the UC system, into the specific cases before the Supreme Court. How do you address the fact that and the reality that affirmative action only impacts like 5% of out-of-state college admissions and 2% of in-state admissions, according to the University of North Carolina? Or specifically for North Carolina. I don't know if that holds true for other schools, but that's the data that came before the district court. Yeah, that's absurd. Those are claims that were made by the defendant's expert who just did a lot of very goofy stuff with her modeling. And just on its face, that claim doesn't make any sense because if, if, that, if that was all the difference that it made, then why would the university be spending $25 million to fight these lawsuits? Why would they care? It's only affecting 2% of in-state applicants, then who cares? The reality is that at University of North Carolina, if you had all the characteristics of a typical admitted out-of-state applicant and you were... Asian American, you had about a 25% chance of admission. If you were identical to that person, but your race was black, you had a 99% chance of admission. That's for out-of-state. For in-state, the numbers are 25% for Asian American and 91% for African American. So it's a vast, vast difference and a very heavy thumb on the scale. And the numbers that, that you're signing are just nonsense. 
I mean, they're nonsense put out by the university. I'm not saying like, what you're saying is nonsense. And, and those, you know, those statistics I just gave you are undisputed by the defendants. And they've now been published in peer-reviewed publications. The guy who did that, Peter Sidiakono, he's an economist at Duke. He went out after the cases were concluded at the district court level and submitted his article, submitted his findings as articles to peer-reviewed journals. And all of them have been accepted and published in, in elite journals. The expert on the other side didn't do that with any of her work, nor did the Harvard expert. And I think the reason is they know that what they did is nonsense. It wouldn't stand up to professional scrutiny. They were just writing stuff that they hoped would persuade the judges. Taking that into account, that affirmative action does have maybe a larger impact than the traditional data might say, in that your criticism of affirmative action seems to largely turn on the fact that it isn't helpful for the students that it seeks to help and instead harms those students. What do you think about admitting students based on legacy, based on athletic performance, based on, as universities will likely could likely attempt to do if racial preferences are abolished based on socioeconomic status or geographic diversity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. So let's talk about legacies. Every state that has abolished, there are now, I think, 10 states that have, have formally abolished racial preferences. In all those states and all those state universities affected, legacy preferences were subsequently gotten rid of as well. It becomes pretty much indefensible for university to maintain legacy preferences if they they can't use right racial purposes because it just seems hypocritical for the reasons that you're pointing out. Through kind of a long change of coincidences, my wife ended up being the formal submitter of a brief to the Supreme Court, arguing that Harvard can't say that it's narrowly tailoring its use of race as long as it has these legacy preferences that it has. And that argument ended up coming up several times in the Supreme Court oral arguments. And I was a little bit mipped because my wife's a physicist and I had arranged for her to be the submitter of this brief because the, the guy who really wrote it wanted to be anonymous and her brief got much more attention than mine did. So that, that created a little bit of tension over dinner, but I, I'm really glad that the, the idea got across. I think the best way to get rid of legacy preferences is by limiting racial preferences. So that's not fully answering your question. I think what you're also asking is do athletic preferences and legacy preferences create mismatch problems of their own? And would socioeconomic preferences do the same thing? And I think the answer is generally yes, if they're as large. And in some areas, some schools and some sports, you do see these really large preferences. I mean, UNC has really large athletic preferences. And what they did for their athletes is they set up a parallel academic program. They have special courses that just the athletes take, which of course solves the mismatch problem because then the athletes are just competing with other athletes. But that's not really a, a great way to do undergraduate education, is it? So yeah, I, I think any large preference is going to have a harmful mismatch effect. The key thing about socioeconomic preferences is that you can do them. I have done them at my law school in a moderate way that has a big impact on socioeconomic diversity, but doesn't create mismatch. So in 98, when Prop 2 and I went into effect, I argued to my colleagues that we should move from racial preferences to socioeconomic preferences. And I developed a system with a colleague where we took into account people's neighborhood, parents' wealth, all sorts of things that reflect disadvantage and also correlate with race. And we found that we were able to get significant racial diversity and a lot of socioeconomic diversity using preferences that on average were about one fourth as large as the old racial preferences we had. So that meant that the gaps were much smaller and the law school went on to have its highest bar passage rate in history from that class. So yeah, I think you can have a win-win here. If you work on building the pipeline and use moderate preferences based on things other than race. 
Why do you think moderate socioeconomic preferences work or are fine, but moderate racial preferences are not okay? Like, what's the difference between those two preferences, using them at a more modest scale? Yeah. Well, when I wrote my book, Mismatch, 10 years ago, I argued that the court shouldn't get rid of racial preferences. It should just say they can't be any bigger than socioeconomic preferences. And I still believe that moderate racial preferences would be fine. The problem is that they just seem to be so corrupting. I just don't trust administrators to use them moderately. If you can have rigorous transparency and you had clear limits on the size of preferences, yeah, moderate anything is fine. In fact, a moderate preference maybe helps someone because it puts them into an environment where they can keep up, but they also have sort of the example of some really academically motivated students as classmates. That's why I think integration in K-12 schools generally works because there's usually a performance gap, but it's not so big that the inspiration effect is greater than the mismatch effect. I guess you could say. But I, I've just become very disillusioned about the ability of schools to honestly moderate their use of racial preferences. Okay. I see that. I mean, I think that I'm glad you point out that having legacy status at the same time seems deeply flawed because I also feel that legacy status can play an outsized role in admission. I don't know. And I say that as someone who has legacy status at a lot of schools, I have that advantage and I'm aware of that, you know, and that it, that informs ultimately what colleges I look at, right? If there are colleges that I'm like, oh, I really like this school and I have legacy status, that might rank above a school where I'm like, oh, I really like this school, but I don't have legacy status when you're trying to figure out application just like on a practical level. And so I think that there's definitely something to be said for the fact that if we end racial preference legacy status also needs to end. And so talking about oral argument, because you were there, what did you observe during those five hours and what most surprised you? Well, what most surprised me is how reluctant everybody in the room was to get into sort of the empirical issues. So those statistics, for example, that I mentioned about uh, your relative probability of admission, uh, I think are very powerful, but, but nobody brought them up. Not not the lawyers on either side, nor the justices on either side. And I think it's because lawyers are intimidated by empirical data and they don't necessarily feel confident that as they put out a particular argument, they can defend it if it's challenged. And that's a real problem. You know, the district court opinions in both UNC and Harvard were terrible. I mean, the judges were either dedicated liars or they were completely confused about the empirical record, but they, they're just filled with ridiculous statements arguing the opposite of what the experts were demonstrating. So that whole aspect of the litigation was kind of discouraging to me. Although later on, I felt like many of the justices probably do have a reasonable grasp of the empirical arguments, but they just felt it wasn't necessary to get into a real argument. What one saw them spending their time on was sort of floating ideas that they see as rhetorically powerful arguments for whatever position they want to take and sort of seeing how those rhetorical ideas were handled by the other justices and the lawyers. So Roberts, for example, clearly an important idea to him or an important rhetorical argument to him is the increasing difficulty of defining race in America because, you know, multiracial people are the fastest growing race in the United States. So he went into a series of questions about, well, how do you know who's black? And if someone has a black grandparent and a French grandparent and a Czech grandparent and so on, you know, what box should they check? And what came out of that was Harvard admitting that they leave it entirely up to the applicant to decide what race they are, which is clearly a goofy system, although you can't really argue for any alternative system, right? And there's an empirical fact underlying that, which is about 70% of the blacks at Harvard Law School are either multiracial or foreign nationals. 
they're not generally descendants of American slaves. Let's see. Clarence Thomas repeatedly said, can you define diversity for me? And everyone struggled with that. Alito repeatedly said, can you tell me in what year you will be able to stop using preferences? And nobody wanted to deal with that. So these are all arguments that they're sort of non-technical arguments that the average person can sort of easily relate to. And these guys were clearly sort of setting them up as trial balloons to see, see if anyone could shoot them down. Right. And I think it was also interesting to see at least the conservative justices and the liberals as well kind of assume that affirmative action, or at least how we think of affirmative action and racial preferences is probably over, or at least going to sunset and kind of trying to figure out a narrow way to keep applicants able to talk about like their backgrounds and their cultural and childhood and how that related to race. So I want to ask you, what did you think of Katanji Brown Jackson's hypothetical about two students that want to write their admissions essay on living in North Carolina for five generations and only one can because it doesn't relate to race or at least doesn't explicitly mention race? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And one of the essays I'll send you talks about this a little bit. I think what I would like to see the court do is rule in these cases on the basis of Title VI and not on the basis of the 14th Amendment. Both those issues are in play for UNC, just the Title VI argument is in play for Harvard. But there are two reasons for that. If you rule on Title VI, that still gives the Congress the power to amend Title VI and permit some types of racial preference. So they could they could decide, for example, that the military academies continue to use some racial preferences, which is an issue that came up a few times, I think has been important has been a concern for some justices. But Title VI also has a good framework for evaluating how race is used. So under Title VI, you can sort of have what's called a bona fide occupational qualification under the Civil Rights Act of 64. We can say that gender or race might be relevant in certain types of occupations. And so it's fine for someone under Title VI to talk about their race or their experiences related to race as part of who they are and what might qualify them as an applicant. But what you want to do is to make that transparent enough and make the process quantitative enough so that if an admission system is, is challenged, you can then evaluate whether that racial factor is being used as a diversity factor and not as a racial factor. In other words, do we give the same credit to people of other races who have similar experiences, right? I mean, you, you could be from Taiwan and sort of be traumatized by the fear of a mainland China invasion, or you could be, you know, a Chinese American student in San Francisco who's upset because who is traumatized by experiencing rejection through affirmative actions. I mean, there was a different kind of race related experiences that people can have. It's not a monopoly for African Americans. So if you take that approach. And you can audit files in a challenge to a university's system. You can then measure whether that's being used in a, in a fair way. And so the Civil Rights Act kind of has a well-established mechanism for dealing with that type of problem, if that makes sense. I don't know if that was too rambling. I know we could keep, keep talking about this for a few more hours, but I know we're running out of time. Can we ask one final concluding question? What does college and law school look like in a post-affirmative action world? I am hopeful that our academic environments will, would be much healthier because under the current system, we have sort of these racial battle lines that reflect these disparities in performance and also this sort of sense that folks are competing for territory. And a big problem in academia today is sort of the intolerance of dissent 
the view that there are legitimate and illegitimate lines of inquiry, this sort of concern about safe spaces and a lot of what I would consider hypersensitivity on issues of race. We haven't talked about it at all, but, but I've encountered a lot of ostracism and cancellation attempts because of the work that I do and the, the effort to get facts out about the operation of affirmative action. And that's all profoundly unhealthy for the academic environment. No one has even suggested at most law schools, the idea of having an open debate about the Harvard and UNC cases and constitutional law professors don't feel that they can even raise the issue of mismatch in their classrooms. That's just bad. So I'm hopeful that if we can get beyond this sort of system where we not only have racial purposes, but universities feel compelled to be deceptive about how they operate and what their consequences are, then we'll have a step closer to a more honest academic environment. Well, Professor Sander, thank you so much for talking with us today. And we'd love to talk to you after the court releases this decision or even before. It's been great to hear your perspective. We really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, well, I'm impressed by how well-prepared and knowledgeable you both are. So this was a pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you.